0: Technically, I'm not supposed to be here today, according to the systems, the way I was sentenced, and the way it's designed to work. The system started breaking, and what I mean by that is that it, it wasn't adding up no more. The numbers weren't adding up no more. Taxpayers started realizing that they're footing the bill for a business that the business puts no investment in, people like us.
1: Welcome to Afterlife, Season 2 of Grey Area. I'm Julie Reynolds Martinez. For this entire season, we're following the story of Gilbert Bale, a young man sentenced to life in prison who finds unexpected freedom, and with it, a whole new set of challenges. In our last episode, Gilbert started his life sentence, and right away learned that a prison gang had put him on a hit list. Alone in solitary confinement, he faced a choice, whether to try to work things out with the gang leaders or go to a protective custody yard. Ultimately, he thought about his daughter and family's futures and decided to go to the yard where he could put prison gang politics behind him.
0: If I didn't have my daughter and at least half of the hardest decisions I ever had to make while I was incarcerated doing life, especially the early years, I probably would still be there or I I wouldn't be alive.
1: Life in the new yard was different. With no gang orders to follow, Gilbert had time on his hands. And as a newly arrived maximum security prisoner, he wasn't allowed to take part in any prison programs for the first few years.
0: When you first get there, you're on like super high security, you can't get a job,
1: I go to school, there's all these restrictions. But everyone was allowed to use the prison library, and that's where he met a man who would forever change him. His name was Joe Tapia.
0: I go to the library, I'm walking out, and um, I had uh, Malcolm X autobiography. He sees me standing outside the library, waiting to get back in my building. And he went over and asked me like, hey, you like that, you like reading that? And we ended up having a conversation that blew me away because this dude was like so intelligent. He, he was just saying words I didn't know, I didn't know what they meant. His ability to describe historical moments it, it, it blew me away. I was like, this dude's not talking about gangs. Was like, I meet this guy and he's telling me all this stuff. Like, he gotta be in there studying. I gotta be reading. And that night I was in my cell. I was on the top bunk. And I seen all these books coming under my door. And he put a typewriter in front of my old brother's plug-in typewriter. What am I supposed to do with that? And he goes, hey, keep those books as long as you want. All I ask is that when you read them, if you can please write a report on them and then type it out and let me read them. So I'm like, all right, cool, man. Gives me something to do. No job, no school. I'm just in the cell all day. We would go to the yard and I would read them to him and he would give me feedback and he would question my writing. He would question me like, you say that as it's a fact. How do you know that's true? He goes, that's just your belief, man. And I was like, I don't understand. And he started showing me the difference. He basically challenges me and says, read nonfiction and learn something because one day the door's going to open for you and you need to be ready. feeling like a dummy. Before I went to prison, I went to college took a placement test and couldn't even get past the first two questions. And he's starting to teach me about economics now. We're talking about capitalism. We're talking about other kinds of economies set up in other countries. Now I'm thinking way bigger than my block, my neighborhood, my homies. But I'm like, Dude, where do I stand with all of this? I'm believing something somebody else told me and I just ran with it and made myself out to be the hero in the story, even though I'm not an anti-hero, you know? I'll walk in the store and rob the store while you go to work all week. I, I started to meet guys from parts of California that were supposed to be my enemies. This guy, he's around my age. He asked me if I would be willing to talk to some kids. If they brought kids into the prison, would you come out and talk to them? And I was like, they will never let that happen here. And he goes, if I got it done, you'd be down to go with me out there and talk to them? And I told him, man, I don't know what I would say. What would I say to a kid that wasn't said to me that's different so they wouldn't end up like me? I really couldn't answer the question. I went to the first meeting and everybody there embraced me. There was over, I don't know, 60, 80 people in this first meeting.
1: So when the kids came in the first time, were you nervous?
0: Oh, yeah, I was really nervous. Remember, I'm still blaming the world for me being there. I wanted to prove that if you had the right... Things, if you had your dad, if you had the discipline at home, then this shouldn't happen. How did the kids react? They had a really good reaction to me to the point where within a few meetings with the kids, I was put into a position of showing the other guys that were the mentors there what I was doing. And really all I was telling them was... Try to identify what is stopping them from um, making the right decisions, like what's going on in their life.
1: Gilbert was discovering himself. He found something he was good at, something he hoped could make a difference to kids who grew up just like he did. The program was revolutionary. It wasn't one of those scared straight groups intended to frighten kids away from crime. The curriculum was created and run by the prisoners themselves. Sponsored and supported by the state parole office, the inmates decided how to really reach the at-risk kids brought into the prison. Men who were once members of rival gangs sat down together to speak from the heart about the reality of their lives.
0: I'm representing a southerner, I got a northerner sitting next to me, I got a black guy, I got maybe a skinhead there, you know, you have a pretty diverse group. We started spreading out in the next county, the following county, we were doing them every two weeks because the prison was getting a lot of positive PR, public relations. We're going to debunk the myth
1: Mm.
0: of how you get there, what happens in there, and what goes on in our own personal life that attract us to that lifestyle. I read a lot of literature out there and it's just, there's always pieces missing, the perspective of people that grew up there, that lived that lifestyle, because it's different to live it than to describe it from the outside looking in. We will put them in those scenarios and say, how many kids, raise your hand, have known somebody that's been murdered? And almost every kid's gonna raise their hand in the room. Okay? How many of them were within the last six months? And you'll see a bunch of hands go up. How many of them knew the person murdered? They're seeing each other answering these questions. It's, it's not easy. You don't just put somebody in front of a kid and tell them, just say no. We actually put it on the kids to come up with that answer. We wanted them to feel like they could say whatever they needed to say. So that was basically the beginning of me now getting into something positive that was learned through my negative choices.
1: Gilbert's life in prison was already unlike anything he'd imagined. He learned he was good at mentoring, good at reaching kids who needed a hand. But his relationship with his own daughter, Marlena, was rockier. Years later, he asked her what his incarceration was like for her.
0: Um, I
1: didn't know the truth for a long time.
0: Every time I'd ask, why were you there? What's
1: going on? What's happening? It always seemed like everybody was sugarcoating it. You know, just to kind of keep me happy. Just to kind of... I don't know, maybe shut me up. For a long time, remember I used to tell you about my dream, about how, I think it was my ninth birthday, or maybe even younger. Um, I used to, every every birthday
0: I had, my wish was that you would come home. And
1: <laughs> it's kind of hard to say right now. <laughs>
0: yeah, you're doing good um, though.
1: It, it got to a point where I, I gave up. I gave up, and I stopped wishing for that because it felt like you were never gonna come. But I got tired of my of everything being let down, and it just seemed like like helpless, you know, just kind of hopeless. And I, I, I knew that I, I had to keep going. I had to keep living my life even though a part of me wanted wanted you there with me, wanted you to be here in person. I, I had to keep going. I had to, you know, just somewhere in the back of my head, knowing that one day you would, one day you would be home, one day, what we did today would happen eventually. And-
0: How about if I go over there right now?
1: No! <laughs> <laughs> and now... And here he
2: is! <laughs> now it's real, right? Yeah,
1: now it's real! Gilbert's ex would occasionally bring Marlena to visit him. He'd get to spend a few hours with his daughter in a large visiting room, surrounded by prison guards and dozens of other families.
0: My emotions are like a roller coaster. Some days I'm depressed, you know, for days or weeks. Other days I'm happy, I'm I'm doing something positive, I'm studying, you know, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do this next visit with these kids. or visit with my daughter, how can I get creative and make this a lasting moment, these eight hours I'm going to be in visit with my daughter. I really enjoyed it, and at the same time, I was still doing things I should have been doing. Um, and that contradiction, it started eating away at me to the point where I started questioning myself. There's like a paradigm shift taking place in my belief system. I'm spending these hours in the cell reading and studying biographies, autobiographies. I'm learning about different movements, the 60s. I'm learning about social change. I'm learning about the peace movements and all the different players in it and the different philosophies around the world. I'm like, it's blowing me away that the more I learn, the more I realize how much I really, really don't know. Like I really don't know nothing. Now I'm like, I need to do this with my daughter. I need to teach her what I'm learning, but age-appropriate and topic-appropriate.
1: Gilbert was so inspired, he even joined a parenting group for prisoners.
0: And they taught us little games and things you can write to your kids to keep their attention. I tried all those little things. What's your favorite book? Because they told us always knowing the shoe size, like try to remember their favorite color, try to show that you're you're actively in their life. So I'm trying it, you know? Now I start taking that into the class. This young kid I'm sitting in front of, what are his social factors that he's working against? What are the historical factors that he's working against? How do we address those in six hours? We started realizing that what we were doing with the kids, having those kind of circles, that we should be doing it with each other, so that we can build insight into what led us into prison. And we started these little workshops. We would take turns, and we just went around the whole circle and said, tell us your life story, all the stuff that led to you coming to prison, murder, whatever it was.
1: Who came up with this? How did this? Mm-hmm.
0: It was through the interaction we were having with the kids when they were there. Because the mentors, they were sitting there and they were tell the kid, like, you know, I was molested when I was a kid. And I'm like, whoa. Like, who in prison would come out there and say that? And I'm like, wow. Like, these guys are they're real, you know? And, um, you know, that made me dedicate a little bit more to working on myself. This is all like new, we're, we're like a new, new ground right here.
1: A high-level prison staff member approached Gilbert and asked if he'd like to work full-time five days a week doing the kind of work he did with the kids. Gilbert couldn't believe there was a job like that in prison. He could learn to become a mentor for other incarcerated men in the department's substance abuse program. She ended
0: up having me transferred to another prison. It's like a boot camp for mentors because they're basically teaching you in a militant way to be 100% accountable to every rule you can think of. I finally bought into the militant style and I, I basically cleaned up my life.
1: It's interesting that the militant the rules and everything it sounds to me an awful lot like the gangs but and i'm glad you
0: brought that up because i say that about a lot of things all the time in business the way teams are set up i'm like this is the same thing they do in gangs the thing that i was always willing to be in the front lines to die kill rob steal cheat lie whatever it took if i was willing to do that then all I gotta do is get that energy, focus it on this, and my life should just get terrific overnight. Everything changed, you know, everything. My conversation, my attitude, the way I walk, the way I talk, everything was way different. I was maturing and in, um, in a place designed to break you.
1: Gilbert eventually worked with other prisoners to produce a groundbreaking annual event at their prison in Soledad, California. They created an educational program for National Crime Victims' Rights Week. Hundreds of men attended each year. At one of these events, a group counselor in the prison, Leo Jimenez, explains its revolutionary impact. It's
2: all centered on honoring your victim and we we call it view switching where the guys switch their views and put themselves in the victim's shoes and feel the pain and and anguish that they think their victims felt when they committed a crime or or they were murdered or raped or whatever the crime was be that's the the type of uh, that's the feeling that they want to kind of take within themselves and that's to honor their victims and the pain that they've caused not only their victims but also the whole community that have affected. The, the whole basis of this is to say that a crime doesn't just impact one person, it impacts the whole community. They're making commitments stating that they won't commit any more violence for the remainder of their life. You have these grown men crying, asking for forgiveness, um, and then signing the pledge of non-violence, you know. Uh, so it, it's, it's, a, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing thing to see that how, how deep inside this, this, this event, you know, touches individuals.
1: Gilbert and his friends even invited outside speakers to come in and talk about the ways violent crime changed their lives. One of them was Debbie Aguilar, a mother from the nearby city of Salinas.
0: My name is Debbie Aguilar. I'm a survivor of a victim of homicide, my son. My son, Stefan, his name, was Stefan? Can you all say his name with me? Stefan. Again, please. Stefan. Stefan was 18, and thank you for that.
1: This is Victims Aware- Awareness Week, Victims Rights Week.
0: I became my son's
1: voice, not after his death, even before his murder. He was killed 15 years ago. He was. Just 18, and the headlines called it,
0: had a title, Man Found Dead in His Car.
1: Debbie started out forming a support group for women who lost their children to the youth violence so prevalent in the area. But unlike some victims' rights advocates, Debbie quickly realized that youth violence creates many victimized families. Those whose children have been murdered, but also those whose children were sent away to die in prison. With youth violence, the difference between the two is often a fine line. In Gilbert, Debbie saw hope for a future where those walls that divide us could be broken down, and they became good friends. Gilbert and Debbie worked together year after year to raise awareness about what they called the ripple effects of violence. They promised each other if he ever got out, they would continue to work together to help others by sharing their experiences and their unlikely friendship. Gilbert's new career, being a teacher, counselor, and mentor inside the prison walls, was launched. So I'm showing up in these other prisons and we're creating these programs. So now it's like, okay,
0: who can we grab on the yard and show them how to do what we do? Now I'm getting a lot of recognition from the administration. I got to the point where I could pretty much put a proposal together, get a classroom, and start a group of life skills. I'll teach the first eight weeks, I'll have a co-mentor working with me. I leave the class, he takes over the class, and now we have another class. The violence, the fights, everything on the yard started going down. My mom could see the difference. Everything changed, everything in life. I ended up going back to school, getting my high school diploma. I acquired over 60 units in college, all A's and B's. I'm in no relationship intimate relationship with uh, any women. I'm not writing to nobody. I'm just focusing on me. And that I did for so many years that I started to realize that that may be becoming unhealthy for me. I'm doing too many groups. I'm tired all the time. I'm worried about completing these assignments at school. When you're working with people of change, you're working more resistance than acceptance. So. That's very tiring.
1: Gilbert is also tired of feeling alone. Like most human beings, he craves intimacy. And in our next episode, he decides to do something about it. This episode was co-produced by Gilbert Bayo and Mara Reynolds, with contributed reporting by Claudia Melendez Salinas. You can check out all our episodes and show notes at grayareapodcast.com. That's gray with an A. And don't forget to check out season one, where you can hear six stories about justice and redemption. Gilbert even shares his prison tamales recipe in episode five. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit www.calhume.org. The music for this episode is by Ketza and Nuisance. Thanks again to the amazing artists at the Free Music Archive. Details are on our website. For Grey Area, this is Julie Reynolds Martinez, and this is season 2, After Life.